Matthew 18, beginning in verse 18, Jesus says, Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Matthew 18 is a kind of how-to chapter. How to become great in the kingdom in verses 1 through 6. And in verses 10 through 14. Jesus has spoken about humility and honesty and forgiveness and restoration as the tools that will be necessary to be employed in God's kingdom. And Jesus will speak about how to escape hell in verses 7 through 9. to By controlling what you do and controlling what you see. And how to exercise Christian discipline or church discipline in, in verses 15 through 20. Jesus has given the procedure in verses 15 through 17. If your brother sins against you, go to him in private. Attempt to reconcile the matter in verse 15. If this fails, take someone with you in verse 16. If that fails, take the matter to the church in verse 17. And if that fails, dismiss the unrepentant brother at the end of verse 17. Now in this passage, Jesus will give us a promise that authority of heaven itself will sustain the decision in verses 18 through 20. Church discipline can be done the right way, or it can be done the wrong way. It can be done in the right spirit. Or it can be done in a wrong spirit. And if it's done in a wrong spirit, it can do great damage. People or churches can become self-righteous or smug or legalistic. But discipline done right can bring peace and righteousness and restoration. Is there a guarantee that discipline done right will always bring about the desired outcome? Peace, harmony, holiness. Well, King Jesus is in effect making a contract with the church. If we agree with Jesus about the importance of humility, honesty, about the importance of forgiveness, about the importance of harmony and holiness in the body, the congregation, the fellowship, Jesus is with us. If we agree with Jesus about the importance of fellowship and relationship, if we agree with Jesus about the horror of sin and our obligation to confess our sin and repent of our sin, our obligation to restore and reconcile, Jesus will back up our decision in heaven, with God the Father, by the power of the Holy Spirit. J.P. Morgan was one of the richest men in the world. He was once asked, 
what do you suppose is the best collateral for a loan? Without hesitation, he replied, the man's character. Isn't that interesting? The reason you can trust God's word is because you can trust God's character. The reason why you can trust Jesus' instructions is you can trust his character. You can trust God's word. The reason you can believe God's promises is because you can trust his character and trust his word. And no church is fit to discipline its members unless it's willing to discipline itself. By the way, if a parent asks a child not to lie, not to cheat, not to steal, doesn't it make sense that the parent should set the example? If a government asks its citizenship, don't lie, don't cheat, don't steal, isn't it incumbent upon the government to model what it's asking the citizens to do? If a church is asking its congregants not to lie, cheat, or steal, to love each other, to minister to one another, to encourage one another, to make life easier rather than harder. Isn't it incumbent on us to do this? By the way, wouldn't it be great if you could make all the pain in the world go away? That's probably not going to happen though, is it? Can you make some of the pain go away? Can you make any of the pain go away? I'm going to suggest to you that the moment you decide to make life easier and a little less painful for someone else, you're on your way. So we begin. We agree to exercise love in relationship to authority. Look what it says in verse 18. Assuredly, Jesus says, assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Whenever Jesus uses that term, assuredly, it's an idiomatic expression which means what I'm about to say is absolutely true. This doesn't mean that everything he said is less than true, but he's drawing special attention to this particular phrase. He assures the disciples that the decisions made from verses 1 through 17 will be supported in heaven. The word bind is an interesting word. It's the Greek word dea. It literally means to tie off. It can mean prohibit. It can mean do not allow. In the book of Romans and Corinthians, Paul speaks of a woman being bound to her husband in, in the legal sense of the word. We can only permit or allow in our churches what God permits or allows in heaven. In other words, the way we know God's will or God's love or God's character or God's heart in any given matter is we look to the revelation that's been given to us in the word of God. A church cannot make rules or punish people if the church doesn't recognize and embrace God's rule. The church can't recognize or approve 
what God fails to recognize and approve. All churches must be under the authority of God. And by definition, God's word. We must not allow what the Bible forbids. And we must not forbid what the Bible allows. That makes sense to you, I hope. Jesus has made it clear he doesn't allow people to abuse children. To cause other people to stumble. To remain in unrepentant sin. Jesus has also made it clear he doesn't allow dishonesty and pride and selfishness. But he does allow honesty and humility and love and forgiveness in relationship. So here Jesus is giving the disciples and therefore the church the authority to permit what God permits and to forbid what God forbids. Many people have read these verses outside their context, which is verses 1 through 17, or the issue of humility and the issue of discipline, and they come up with all kinds of bizarre interpretations. These passages do not teach that the church has the divine right to forgive sins apart from the sacrifice of Jesus, apart from the cross of Christ, apart from the gospel. Last week, there was a headline. It said that the Pope has now given common priests the ability to forgive the sin of abortion. Now, the headline in and of itself would be alarming if what the Pope had said earlier was true, that only bishops were allowed to forgive the sin of abortion and then only under special circumstances, but in this day of exoneration or jubilee, he's giving common priests the ability to do it. The problem with the whole thing is it's based on a false assumption. That he has the right to retain or remit sin. Can you imagine if that were true? Can you imagine that if a human being had the ability to forgive what God refuses to forgive. Or to refuse to forgive what God clearly says he's willing to forgive. For all who will come in submission and obedience and humility to Christ Jesus the Lord. This passage isn't a get out of hell free card. And it isn't a go-to-heaven free card. The church cannot absolve people of sin apart from the gospel, apart from grace. You can't sell grace, and you can't merchandise grace. Do you know what? In 1517, it was Martin Luther who posted the 95 Theses on the Wittenberg door. And you would think that 500 years later, we would have already resolved this issue. But guess what? The issue is alive and well at this very moment. And so, the church can't make up rules and then expect God to abide by man-made rules that contradict Jesus, that are condemned in the Bible. The text doesn't teach that you can bind devils or Satan in the spirit realm. 
Mark 16, 17 certainly refers to casting out demons. And Jesus did give the apostles authority over unclean spirits. The power was given to cast out unclean spirits out of afflicted people in Jesus' name. Christians are never told to bind the devil. We're told to submit to God and resist the devil in James chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. We're to give no place to the devil in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 27. If we can bind demons, how long are they bound? And why do they always seem to escape? Many people have a distorted view of how to deal with sin and how to deal with demons. The way to deal with demons is to make sure that Jesus is the Lord of your life. When Michael the archangel had a run-in with Satan, he didn't bind him under his own authority. In Jude chapter 1 verse 9 it says, Yet Michael the archangel, while contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses, does not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke you. The Bible does teach that sometimes Satan is allowed to bind us and to throw us into prison. Jesus wrote a love letter to the church at Smyrna through the beloved apostle John in the book of Revelation to the church under persecution. He wrote in Revelation chapter 2 verse 10, Fear none of these things which you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison that you may be tried and you will have tribulation ten days. But be faithful unto death, and I'll give you a crown of life. I didn't find one reference in the entire Bible to binding the devil. It does say in Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 and 2, I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. It would seem that the devil can be bound and will be bound. The rabbis of Jesus' day often talked about things being bound or loosed in heaven or loosed and bound on the earth to indicate what was allowed or forbidden in light of God's word. A Jew of that day would have understood that Jesus didn't mean that men could bend heaven's will to their own, but that God had an expressed principle with which the church must conform, one Bible writer says. God is not bound to obey the church. The church is bound to obey God. In other words, when the church follows Jesus' pattern of confrontation, forgiveness, reconciliation, we have heaven's authority and approval. Let me put it to you another way. If you tell a person that Jesus loves you, you have full assurance that God will back up your statement in heaven. If you tell a person that Jesus died on the cross for their sins, 
If you tell a person that God is willing to forgive them in Christ, give them a new heart, give them a new life, give them a new future, give them a new hope. If you tell them what the Bible says about them, then God is heaven bound to honor that. Paul said that if Jesus' death on the cross could save you, how much more could the resurrection of Jesus from the dead keep you in a perfect position to inherit all things in Christ if a person refuses to accept Jesus as his or her savior? Can the church with equal confidence declare you're still in your sin? The answer is no. The church can't say, even though you've come to Christ by faith, even though you've accepted him in love, even if though you've believed the gospel and trusted him as your savior, we as the church can say, unless you do exactly what we want, you can't go to heaven. Which makes more sense to you? Do you really want someone as fickle as me to be in charge of your eternal destiny? Yeah, no is the right answer. Thank you. Thank you for that. That's the right answer, by the way. Can you imagine if a person says, I want to go to heaven. And I want my sins to be forgiven. And I want to experience love and joy and peace. But I don't want to accept Christ. I don't want to trust him as my savior. I don't want to believe that God sent him to die on the cross for my sin. And I don't want to believe that he rose for my justification. But I want to go to heaven. Is it safe to say to that person, then you will? I've had many conversations with people involved in the kingdom of the cults or the occult or false philosophical systems. Some have claimed to be saved. Some have said that they're on their way to heaven. They've claimed that they're on their way to heaven even though they deny Jesus, even though they deny he's the unique son of God, even though they deny his death on the cross for sin, even though they deny his literal, physical, bodily resurrection from the dead. To them I can say with absolute confidence, you are not saved. You remain in your sin. You've never repented of your sin. You've never trusted him alone for redemption. How can you possibly be saved? You've denied the Savior's identity. You've denied his mission. You've denied his destiny. I beg you, I'm begging you to believe in the Lord Jesus and receive him and be saved. The context of binding and loosing here more likely refers to the people being disciplined that's been spoken about in the text in verses 15 through 17. Jesus is in effect promising to act directly on the church's behalf to bring about the right result when people in love with each other and in love with the Lord Jesus come to the right conclusion. When you promise... To work lovingly towards reconciliation. 
Christ is saying, I am permitting and prohibiting those things that I have either authorized or forbidden in my word. You exercise my authority and heaven will back you up. So imagine a person says to you, I'm here to tell you that if you'll turn from your sin and you'll receive Christ as your savior, you'll be saved. Jesus in heaven says, I'm, I'm going to back you up on that. And then when you receive Christ, the Bible says the angels rejoice. And that's part of the point. And look what it says in verse 19. The Father and the Son agree to back you up. Look what it says. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Again, Jesus repeats the earlier expression. Again, I say to you, it speaks of authority. It speaks of reliability. It speaks of confidence that Jesus is willing to make good on what he's saying. You can have the full faith and confidence that Jesus will make good his word. And some have suggested that in the context, the two who agree are the ones agreeing to the course of discipline. Some have suggested that where two or more are gathered... They've suggested, well, okay, that's when you have church or the ecclesia or the assembly. Again, the church doesn't have the authority to ask things that are contrary to the nature of God, the word of God, the character of God, the gospel of God. The church has all the authority genuinely given to it by Christ. Families have authority given to it by God. Governments have authority given to it by God. I've heard people teach that this verse means, well, if two or three agree on earth concerning anything, it'll be done for them. So I tried it out this morning. I had my daughter and my, and my grandchildren go, okay, let's, let's all agree that I can fit into Jonathan's skinny jeans that are three sizes too small for me. I want it to be true. I want to be able to fit into his skinny jeans and look really good. How do you think it went? It didn't. Well, we laugh, but, but you start to get it. It can't mean that. If a child says, I want an automatic weapon so I can go and shoot my friends and neighbors. And I want you to agree with me that this is a good idea. Imagine someone foolish enough to do such a stupid thing. Would that still make it right? Would you give a hypodermic syringe to a baby or poison to a child? Have you ever asked God for something foolish or selfish or wicked and then tried to solicit others in your foolish, selfish, and wicked request? Are we given permission for foolish, dangerous, sinful things? Clearly, that can't be the case. Jesus isn't teaching that God will twist 
pervert, distort his character or his word to accommodate our greed or our foolishness or our selfishness or our curiosity. This verse can't mean that you can have whatever you want. Contrary to the word of God, to the will of God, to the character of God, or the nature of God. But guess what? You can have what God has promised according to his will, according to his nature, according to his character, according to the revelation. The other idea is absurd. John MacArthur writes, quote, such an interpretation is tantamount to magic in which God is automatically bound to grant the most foolish and sinful requests simply because two of his children conspire to ask him for it, unquote. And so the expression, anything that they ask, is very interesting in the original language. The word ask is a reference to a petition or a request. Like a child would ask his or her father or a citizen, their king. And the expression about anything is very interesting. It's the Greek expression peri, pantos, pragmatos. Jesus is using the language of a judge. The expression could be rendered anything or about any judicial matter, which I think nicely fits the context. In other words, any judicial matter in which God has already rendered a judgment or rendered a verdict. The expression, if you agree, comes from the Greek word very much like our English word, symphony or harmony. The idea is that multiple voices or instruments come into harmony. When instruments or voices come together, they're supposed to harmonize. Again, the meaning seems to be if the two witnesses harmonize, that is, they agree that this person's sin has been confessed repented that the person loves the Lord, loves the person who's been wronged, that the Father hears them. The opposite would also be true. If the witnesses agree that the person has refused to recognize their sin, refused repentance, refused reconciliation, that the Father agrees and recognizes that the failure on the part of the person to be reconciled can't mean favor. When a person fails to repent, fails to forgive, fails to be reconciled, you can be sure that the Father's not pleased. So what exactly is being asked? Love, peace, harmony, holiness, unity. Here, asked is also a euphemism for Pray, we pray. 
We pray about everything. Remember the context. Someone has sinned. There's a desperate need to make things right. There's a desperate need to know the mind of God and the heart of God in the matter. What better way to find out the mind of God, the heart of God, the character of God on any given matter than to search the scriptures. As you're searching the scriptures and praying, you remember what it says in Psalm 65 too. Oh, you who hear prayer to you, all flesh will come that there is a God who hears us and cares about us and is willing to recognize and reveal his heart on any given matter. So the prayers here are the few who are involved in the process of loving discipline. So God will answer prayers, giving the answer they need as they weigh through the issues involved in the broken relationship. Again, the context seems to be broken people need help getting back together and God's willing to offer that help. God's the living God. When a husband leaves his wife, when a wife leaves her husband, when children rebel against their parents, when friends forsake friendship, there's a way to make things right. And since God knows everything and has the infinite capacity to respond in absolute wisdom and exercise power and love and mercy, we're invited to pray. And finally, we agree to seek outcomes based on the nature and the, the character of Christ. Look what it says in verse 20. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I'm there in the midst of them. Like the previous verses, this verse has also been grossly misinterpreted. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there. It's been used to support the idea that the presence of Jesus in the worship service or the prayer meeting or the small group Bible study requires two or more people. But certainly, here's where we need to go with this. Is Jesus present with his people? The answer is yes. Is Jesus present when an individual is all by himself or herself in a hospital bed? Or all by himself or herself at home? Or in a jail cell? Jesus is present with the believer in the prayer closet. The context, remember again, is discipline in the church or the assembly. The two or the three witnesses are the loving men and women who have agreed or disagreed that a person's sin has been forgiven or not forgiven. And remember, Jesus is assuring the disciples that he himself is with them. He is in effect saying, I'll be there for you. I love you. I'm committed to honesty and humility and love in relationship. I am committed to people recognizing their sin. I am committed to helping people turn from their sin and be reconciled. When people love Jesus and act like Jesus, they take on his character. Such sweet peace and restoration and forgiveness and harmony and holiness creates 
not just the mechanism for the presence of Christ, but you sense his presence. You sense his presence when injury has taken place and now the injury is about to go away because people who love him and love each other are acting on what he's asked us to do. So when we say, in the name of Jesus... It must mean all that that name implies. Again, imagine the person who uses the text like a magical text. Where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there. As if just simply gathering together. And you name the name of Jesus. But you ignore his word. You ignore his character. You ignore his will. The name of Jesus, by the way, means Jehovah is salvation. In chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, Jesus said, but so that you will know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sin. Then he said to the paralytic, take up your mat and go home. And the man got up and went home. Later, in Matthew 28, 18, Jesus will say, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's the meaning of the name. It is code, if you will, for authority, ability. Colin Urquhart wrote, quote, if you accept the authority of Jesus in your life, then you have to accept the authority of his words. And Jesus understands that people hurt each other. Jesus understands that people sin against each other. But there's understanding in the name of Jesus. There's the recognition of injury in the name of Jesus. There's healing in the name of Jesus. There's love in the name of Jesus. And just like the song says, there is power in the name of Jesus. When people are willing to put aside their differences and love each other for the sake of Christ, Jesus says, I am there. Churches can be rich or poor. Churches can be dead or alive. Churches can be powerful or powerless. Churches can be effective or ineffective. I read a story that took place years ago in Cheyenne, Wyoming. A tornado tore through the town and it destroyed a church. And the local paper made this statement, quote, We're pleased to announce that the cyclone which destroyed Cheyenne Community Church yesterday did no real damage to the town. Have you read sadder words than that? It did no real damage to the town. The idea is that its presence in the town doesn't really matter. But when Jesus is present in the church, and when the church is present in the community, 
When Jesus is present and sinners are forgiven and people are healed in their relationship and marriages are healed and families are healed and drunks stop drinking and abusers stop abusing and dealers stop dealing and thieves stop stealing and liars stop lying. Then all of a sudden we begin to understand That the most powerful churches are the ones where Jesus is present. And where Jesus is present to love the people who are loveless. And to forgive the people who are guilty. And to restore the people who are broken. Then the presence or the absence of the church is powerfully missed. In this passage, Jesus makes a contract. That's why we call it the king's contract. It's a binding contract. He encourages us that what we permit and what we forbid in the context of Jesus' name and Jesus' character and Jesus' love will be honored. Who's the greatest in the kingdom? The person who's humble and honest and serves. The person who hates offenses. The person who takes sin seriously. The person who longs to see relationships healed. The person who takes forgiveness seriously. Jesus promises to be present in the process. And when the participants share Christ's values, his goals, his perspective, his love, his concerns... Jesus promises to answer our prayers. When we ignore discipline, if we pretend the offense doesn't really matter, that ruined relationships don't matter, that forgiveness doesn't matter, then the passage serves as a great warning. Jay Adams writes, when discipline has been properly and fully pursued in obedience to Jesus, then we have assurance that the outcome is correct, unquote. In this how-to chapter, we discover, how are you great? Humility. Submission. How do you avoid hell? (laughs) By making sure that your heart is right with God and Christ. And how... Do you forgive? Well, that's what he's going to talk about in verses 21. All the way to the end of the chapter. And if you understand this, if you understand it, you may not be able to make all the pain in the world go away. But you can make some of it go away. And in certain instances, you might make a great deal of the pain go away when you begin to care like God cares. When you begin to go in the direction that Jesus is asking us to go. Next week, how to forgive each other. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, 
Lord, it makes perfect sense to us that you're not going to grant things that are inconsistent with your word or your will. But sometimes people fall for stupidity and foolishness. Sometimes we are so desperate to go our way apart from the gospel and apart from grace and apart from humility and apart from forgiveness that we're willing to believe absurd things. But Lord, I pray that you would reign in our heart. Lord, I pray that you would reveal to us that everything that you've cared about in the past, you still care about in the present. And the provision that you made for us in the past is still present. And the resources that you promised are still available. That, Lord, if we would, in clear conscience, turn from our sin, ask for forgiveness, cry out to you, make every effort to create friendships and fellowships that are honoring to you, that, Lord, you'll meet us way more than halfway. And so, again, Lord, we pray for wisdom and courage as we want to walk and harmony, and holiness, in the revelation that's been given to us in the person of our Lord and Savior, Jesus. And Lord, again, I pray for that person who's tried to have a right relationship with you apart from the Bible, apart from the gospel, apart from the cross. Lord, I pray that you would reveal to them that there is still power in the name of Jesus. There's forgiveness in the cross of Christ. There's hope when we will, in humility, confess our sin and trust Jesus as our Savior. And so again, Lord, we commit these things to you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.